open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be on verses 17 through 21. I'll be reading verses 3 through 21. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for a gospel-rooted fear to mark this people. In an age where the sin of irreverence, flippancy, lightness, 
so permeates those who claim to be your people. Maybe, may it be that one thing that marks us as exiles, sojourners, is that we be a people of reverence and joy mingled with it. In Christ's name, amen. Verses 3 through 12 again form one long elephantine sentence in the original language. And it's a gospel sentence. It's a declarative sentence. It announces good news. It's in the indicative mood. It indicates. It doesn't tell you what to do. It's not good advice. It's good news. It speaks of the good thing God has done in Christ and all that is ours in Him. And so having so feasted on Christ, we found ourselves ready to burn some calories. And we turn to the therefore of verse 13. And we find the... the mood changed from the indicative to the imperative. We have these three commands, but they are gospel enmeshed, gospel buried commands. It begins with therefore, going back to that gospel sentence. Therefore, because of that, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, verse 13. The second command, as obedient children, as he who called you is holy, there again you have the gospel you also be holy in all your conduct. And the third command, verse 17, if you call on Him as Father, again, there's the gospel, conduct yourselves with fear. But that last command, conduct yourselves with fear, is so buried in the gospel that we only began to unearth it last time we looked at this. And is that not shocking to you, perhaps? That this command, conduct yourselves with fear, is the one that's most deeply entrenched in the gospel. From one angle, that should make sense. By doing so, it prevents you from misunderstanding and twisting the command. But remember, whenever we looked at these three commands last, we saw how they are essentially the same command from three different perspectives. Setting your hope on this grace means living like an alien. It, it means that your hope is put elsewhere in the world that is, is already coming about because of Christ in the last days that were inaugurated by His resurrection. And so living like an alien means living a life that's peculiar, distinct, set apart from this world. It means living a holy life. And living this holy life is a life that's marked by reverence and obedience. And so these three commands are one, and so the, the gospel that is so attached to this third command really is, is something that's attached to all three of these. But let's begin by getting that command in particular freshly in our minds. Conduct yourselves with fear. And notice it's conditioned upon calling on Him as Father. If you call on Him as Father, conduct yourselves with fear. This isn't the craven fear of a condemned criminal. This is the reverence of a son. It's not a paralyzing fear, it's an activating fear. We live in an age of widespread irreverence in every direction. Look at how fathers are portrayed in pop culture, for an example. Especially children's programs, they're the worst. He's aloof, he's goofy, he's out of touch. 
Now, sadly, the picture is too true. But remember that uh, popular media, that, that the culture paints just as much as it photographs. So it isn't as though the media is just simply taking a picture of what is and showing it to us. It's creating the reality that it portrays. Yes, miserably, many earthly fathers are not worthy of reverence. But God's command still stands to honor them. And what this means is that any attack on fatherhood always goes all the way up to the one who is worthy of all reverence. Coinciding with this, ours is, is an age that's forgotten what awe is. Everything is awesome, meaning nothing is. If your pizza is awesome, what word do you have left for a blue well, a sequoia, the aurora borealis, or Hurricane Harvey? Worse yet, what words do you reserve for the holy God? In reverence, reserve some words for that which is truly awesome and spectacular. Now, just because we are able to draw near to God in Christ, just because God has brought us near to Himself in Christ, doesn't make Him one whit less awesome. And therefore, no less worthy of reverence and fear. Love and joy. Peter's called for a kind of rejoicing in what God has done. But, but this love and joy and fear and reverence, these are not contrary to one another. You might love roller coasters, but I doubt you tre treat them so casually as to say, you know, the harness, I've done this a hundred times. I don't need the harness this time. What reverence and fear with God mean are a clinging to Christ that you realize you have no, no, no way to come before this holy God save what Christ has done. And so reverence means always coming before the holy God knowing you come clinging to Christ. Or rather that Christ has clung to you. And that's your only hope. Now, I doubt any of us are so frivolous with a roller coaster. But there are life and death matters that we take lightly every day. That have become common to us. It might be heavy equipment might be some kind of power tool. The most common, perhaps, is our privilege of driving an automobile. There are life and death matters that we take too casually. But most astonishingly is how lightly we treat God. Don't behave as though God were some lion that you've tamed by your oratory tricks or your mesmerizing performance. You've said a certain kind of prayer and now God is on your leash. Or you've performed some kind of acts of merit by coming to church on a very cold day whenever so many others have not. And therefore God is somehow obliged. God is not a lion that you tame. He is a lion who has graciously devoured you. 
You are not taming him. He is taming you. He is awesome. He's holy. Now particularly though, the the aspect of fear that's being drawn out here is fear of this one that we call on as Father as an impartial judge. Romans 2 develops this. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Whenever the saints appear before God, no cuteness points are awarded. You don't get special credit for being a Jew, for being a Gentile, for being a Baptist, for being Reformed. You don't get these special points for those things. What he looks upon are deeds that come forth from a kind of reverent fear in the heart. In Revelation 11, the 24 elders recognize the same basic divide as they sing. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. There is this basic divide, and what's essential to remember is, as Peter has unfolded in this letter, as we see in all the Scripture, what makes the divide is Christ. But the divide having been made, nonetheless, there is this distinguishing mark of those who do evil and those who do good, and there is this judgment of reward. And there's this fear that we should have as saints that is attached to recognizing you will stand before God and your deeds will be weighed. Say a father leaves home. He tells his children, clean the garage. Fear means believing he's coming home. But as Peter's unfolded this, you see, there's, there's that kind of child that does that just out of fear of the consequences. But do you see how Peter has so enmeshed this that he's, he's made you to understand that the fear that's called for, this gospel fear, is a fear that not only believes that God is coming home, not only the, that, that, that Jesus is coming back, but it's a fear that longs for that. It wants that. I mourn for so many who've never had a father that they could both revere and rejoice in for the very same reasons. But saints, we have no such lack in our Heavenly Father. He's worthy of our joy and He's worthy of our reverence. God loves you. Rejoice. The one who loves you is God. Revere Him. Now, if it's not clear to you at this point that it really is the gospel that produces this kind of fear, the next verse should make it plain. Verse 18. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing you were ransomed. 
Now, ransom or redemption, those are, those are the same concepts biblically. Ransom or redemption is, is a biblical concept that every saint should grow into a robust, robust understanding of. There's no excuse for continuing ignorance of this concept. B.B. Warfield lamented the death of this word due to theological liberalism in the early 19th century. Theological liberalism doesn't have quite the same hold of Protestant orthodoxy that it did in his time, but sadly, Protestants don't know what redemption means still at large. And I think what he would say today would be largely the same sentiment. He writes, I think you will agree with me that it is a sad thing to see words like these die like this. And I hope you will determine that God helping you, you will not let them die thus, if any care on your part can preserve them in life and vigor. But the dying of the words is not the saddest thing which we see here. The saddest thing is the dying out of the hearts of men of the things for which the words stand. As ministers of Christ, it will be your function to keep the things of life. If you can do that, the words which express the things will take care of themselves. Either they will abide in vigor or other good words and true will press in to take their place left vacant by them. The real thing for you to settle in your minds, therefore, is whether Christ is truly a redeemer to you and whether you find an actual redemption in Him. Or are you ready to deny the master that bought you and to count His blood an unholy thing? Do you realize that Christ is your ransomer and has actually shed His blood for you as your ransom? Do you realize that your salvation has been bought Bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less precious than blood, and that the blood of Christ, the Holy One of God. Or go a step further, do you realize that this Christ who has thus shed His blood for you is Himself your God? To ransom or to redeem means to purchase, to buy back, to deliver in that sense. In the early Roman Empire, most slaves, uh, this, is a, this is a reference to the marketplace, to the slave market in particular, and so in the early Roman Empire, most slaves would have been gained by conquest. As Rome aged, more would be born slaves than were made slaves, but nonetheless, this language of redemption, ransom, to buy back, to purchase out of that to the state of liberty, that would be the, the, the terminology that would be used. And peculiar, the way this most commonly took place was called sacral manumission. And so what would happen is the slave would, uh, by pure uh, benevolence, of, the pure benevolence of others would acquire enough money or a, a benefactor would, would put forth the ransom price and they would take it to the local temple. And part of it would stay in the temple, but the, the ransom price, the large portion of it, would go to the owner of the slave. And the idea was that the God is purchasing the slave to himself. It's a, it's a transaction from, from the slave belonging to one to another. But for all practical purposes, the slave was then free. No real God, no real slavery. Now, whenever we come to words like this, Scholars debate whether or not it's the Greek or the Roman idea that we should see behind the word or the biblical one. But I think verses 10 through 12 have made it 
explain which should have the priority. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. The Christ that's unfolded for us in the Scriptures by the apostles is brought to light to us by the Old Testament. That's what the apostles used. And so while looking at the pagan, the Roman, the Greek etymology and usage of words can be helpful and illuminating at times, preference should always be given to the biblical metaphors as they're developed in the Scriptures. That's what the apostles drew from most heavily. That's what they used to declare Christ. The apostles illuminated Christ from the Old Testament. The Old Testament forms a kind of vocabulary, a, a, an, an encyclopedia, a dictionary for you to read your New Testament. There are two great acts of redemption in the Scriptures. One in the Old, one in the New. All other references in the Scriptures look back to that first one and look forward to the later one, latter one. One is is a shadow, the other is fulfillment. The great act of redemption in the Old Testament is the exodus of God's people by God's ten wonders of judgment. And it's the tenth wonder in particular that the language of redemption is most deeply tied to, where they are redeemed by the blood of a substitute lamb. And that final wonder of judgment, Israel herself was not immune to, remember? What they are redeemed from is the wrath of God. They're they're not simply redeemed from the slavery, bought out of the slavery, but with that slavery, the consequences that are all brought upon it. They're purchased by God, to God. And you need to see that it's not as though whenever this redemption takes place, that it's this transfer of a slavery to Pharaoh, to a slavery to God. Pharaoh doesn't get wealthy off of this transaction. He's decimated by it. God is paying himself the redemption price. To purchase his people to himself. And there are many acts in the Old Testament that we could go to that further illustrate this, but one makes it particularly vivid. In Genesis 22, you see Abraham and Isaac walking up Mount Moriah, the father being called upon to sacrifice his son. And even more astonishing than that, Abraham obeys. That's the fear of the Lord. And you see the father walking with the fire in one hand and the knife in the other. And the son with the wood on his back. Walking up the hill that most scholars speculate is very likely Calvary. As they walk, the son inquires, I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And to Isaac's inquiry, Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide for himself. That's the biblical concept of redemption. God is paying the redemption price to himself. And sure enough, God provides a lamb and we're told, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
a ram offered up in the place of another. This is what biblical redemption means. Redemption by substitution. Another paying the price. What were you ransomed from? We're told here, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Think of Israel laboring as slaves, building these monuments to pagan kings and and the, the gods associated with them. And think of how ultimately vain that labor is as it's done as was intended by the masters. All of it to go down in ash and smoke in the end. All of it doomed. All of it vain and futile. No fear of God in it. All of it to come tumbling down. Our bondage, the bondage of humanity, was to one of sin and Satan and self. We erect these monuments to ourselves and our idols and all of it vain. These futile ways inherited from our forefathers are what are spoken of in verse 14 as the passions of our former ignorance. This way of life is a life of delusion. It's a way of false hope. It's the opposite of the sober-minded, hope-filled, reverence-marked way of life that's being called for here. So do you see that redemption here not only pays the wages of sin, but redemption breaks the power of sin. You're ransomed from these futile ways. Redemption not only pays sin's wages, it breaks the power of sinful ways. What were you ransomed with? The precious blood of Christ meaning the life of Christ given for you. The wages of sin, Romans 6 tells us, is death. And the Scriptures constantly align this blood sacrifice for sins with the loss of life. Blood and life are put together. Leviticus 17.11 The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And notice again there, it's God who's providing this sacrifice of atonement. And so it is that the author of Hebrews writes, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. The price hasn't been paid. The wages haven't been paid. You see, forgiveness is not cheap. God's forgiveness, in particular, is the most expensive transaction that's ever occurred. To wire forgiveness between heaven and earth required the most precious of commodities to purchase it. The blood of Christ. You're redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now, in a sense, we, we would say that the blood of Christ as it, would shed, as it was shed and fell to this ground perished, but as it was the blood of the one who was Christ, it was of infinite value and eternal worth. Verse 23 says, you were born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Verse 4 tells us that our inheritance is imperishable. This is a constant contrast drawn out throughout the first chapter in particular. 
And whenever it comes to this, this great inheritance that you have that's imperishable, it couldn't have been purchased. This salvation, this redemption couldn't have been purchased with perishable things. It had to be Christ. It had to be the sacrifice that was of one who was like a perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish. The perfect substitute, the sinful for the, the, the sinless, excuse me, for the sinful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter will say that he knew no sin, he committed no sin. In 3.22, he writes that Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. And so can you see, after reflecting just this much on our redemption, why Thomas Watson would write, Great was the work of creation, but greater was the work of redemption. Great wisdom was seen in making us, but more miraculous wisdom in saving us. Great power was seen in bringing us out of nothing, but greater power in helping us when we were worse than nothing. It cost more to redeem us than to create us. In the creation, there was but speaking a word. In the redeeming us, there was shedding of blood. The creation was the work of God's fingers. Redemption was the work of His arm. In the creation, God gave us ourselves. In the redemption, He gave us Himself. By creation, we have a life in Adam. By redemption, we have a life in Christ. By creation... We had a right to an earthly paradise. By redemption, we have a title to a heavenly kingdom. Now, I hope you've seen how integrally related everything has been so far in Peter. But as you come to verses 20 and 21, you might wonder, though you see the connection, the blood of Christ, and then he goes on to this piece of Christology, this unfolding of who Christ is, though you can see the tie-in, you can see they're related, do you not feel as though maybe this is a bit of a tangent? If so, we have to say this, it's always permissible, admirable even, to go off on a tangent about Christ. And there is always a tie-in, there's always a reason that you can go on a tangent about the glories of the person of Christ. But is there any vital connection? I, I believe so. I think there are several, but foremost is this, perhaps. It's a danger that we're all too prone to, and it's that of separating Christ's work from His person. As to think that we're saved simply because of what Jesus did. This is why the Christmas story is essential to our salvation. It must be Christ who redeems us. His person is essential to His work. The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient, but do you realize this? That the blood of even a perfect man couldn't atone for the least of sinners. That man would be offering up to God nothing but what was his due, what was his obligation. Contra Rome, 
It is completely alien to the Scriptures that we can somehow accumulate a superabundance of good works as a treasury of merit for others to draw on, however little. Any good we do is simply offering up to God what is His due. A perfect man couldn't represent sinners, he could only represent himself. And so we need a mediator who's not only not condemned to die for his own sins, we need a mediator who's not obliged to live righteously unto God for himself and thus can offer up a life of righteousness as a substitute in place of others. In the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury wrote his classic, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man? And he argued that for one to make atonement, which entails paying the price of redemption, that it's needful the very same person who is to make this atonement be perfect God and perfect man, since no one can do it except one who is truly God, and no one ought to do it except one who is truly man. It's not simply because of what Jesus did that you're redeemed, but because of who He is. And this redeeming Christ was, verse 20, foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Scriptures leave no doubt that the Son was eternally known by the Father. I don't think that's what Peter's trying to speak of here, though. He was foreknown. It's the Christ, we're being told, that was foreknown here. It's the Christ that God set His love upon before the foundation of the world. The Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king of the people, meaning that He both represents them and came from them. He can represent them because He is one of them. He's this mediator between God and man. Jesus was foreknown not simply as the eternal Son of God, He was known, in that sense, eternally by the Father. But here you're told that before the foundation of the world, the Christ, who would redeem His people, was foreknown. I think if you listen to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 from a different angle, it will make clear what is being said here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The Christ, in union with His people, purposed to redeem them. Surely, because He is the sovereign Lord, predestined to accomplish all of that, as that Christ He's foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this foreknown Christ is made manifest in the last times for our sake, verse 20. You see how you went from eternity past to the last times. And you went from something that was hidden to something that's being made manifest. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is both the medium and the message. He comes as the revelation and the revealer. And this manifestation is for us. That's the same language that was used in verses 10 through 12, speaking of of how the prophets prophesied for us. And that what was hidden is made manifest to us through the apostolic preaching of Christ. So we have the historic Christ and the revelation that comes from Him. And that revelation is made known to us in the Scriptures. So you see how these things are tying together even more intricately now. But Peter, remember this, Peter has said that we're to fear knowing we were ransomed. How does that knowledge come? Because of the manifest Christ and the revealed Christ in the Scriptures. Knowing you were ransomed because of Christ and His manifestation and the revelation of Christ, knowing you were ransomed, fear Him. Now, Through this Christ, we're also told we are believers in God, verse 21. Who through Him, through Christ, are believers in God. You believe in God because of Jesus. This is the way Peter said it earlier, 1-3. You were born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Couple that with 1 John 5.3. Everyone who believes, you believe right now, present tense, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you believe, the reason is you've been born again. You're not born again because you believe, you believe because you're born again. And you were born again through the resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't make salvation a potentiality dependent upon you. It makes it an actuality accomplished by God. You were born again through His resurrection. And you believe through Him. Because of Him. Because of who He is and what He's done. You believe. And the reason... That your belief in Him, that sin is dealt with, you're redeemed, you're reconciled. The reason why you can have confidence in that, belief and trust and faith, are because God raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in Him. The resurrection is the proof of purchase for the ransom of Christ. It's the Father... Stating paid, because when Christ rose, He rose as the Christ, in union with His people. His death was theirs, and His resurrection is theirs. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reasons, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He goes on and he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile 
and you are still in your sins. But Christ has been raised so that our faith and hope are in God. Our faith is not vain and futile. The ransom has been paid. It's been accepted. Now how is knowing that you are ransomed by the precious blood of the one who is the Christ, how is that conducive to fear? Three ways. One, you treat your mother's antique vase differently than her plastic drinking cup. You might enjoy and be thankful for both. But knowing what it cost changes how you deal with them. Second, realize you are not your own. This is no fictional, pagan, sacral manumission where you've really, you're really the one who's worked and acquired the ransom price and then you just go through some actions so that it appears as though God has done something. God paid the debt in Christ to Himself. You are Christ's. You are God's. You are not your own. This is what Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How is this conducive to fear? Do you realize who purchased you? Do you realize With what He purchased you. He's the Lord of all. He has all rights to you already as His creation. But then He's purchased you to Himself to be a holy people. A treasured possession. You are not your own. Third. Those two things being so. Do not spurn the precious blood of Christ. Hebrews 10 warns us. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is this speaking of a person losing their salvation? Well, this is a troubling verse to some, and we don't have time for another sermon. But this is very clear whenever you look at what the author is doing in the book of Hebrews. Early on, he calls for his listeners, his readers... Not to be like those Israelites who failed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And so there was this kind of way that the blood of the Lamb was upon them as they were part of the the community of God. But ultimately they didn't believe. 
This warning is for those who play church. You enjoy so many benefits, so many privileges. You enjoy so much light, but there's no gospel fear in your soul. This is for those who persist in sin despite those great privileges. They treat the blood of Christ as though it were a quarter and the salvation He purchased like some cheap trinket out of a vending machine. But the thought of behaving in this way is a terror to the saints. That's what blood-bought fear looks like. The fear of displeasing one who so loved them. So I can only say that if you are one of God's people, this command, I think, makes plain sense to you. It resonates deep in your soul. And perhaps if, if there's still just some confusion in mind, it, it makes sense to your heart. But if there's some confusion in your mind, reversing the order of the sentence might make it clear. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, knowing this redemption. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, May it be the very thought of how astonishing, how awesome your love that we rejoice in. How amazing your redemption, your reconciliation, your salvation in your Christ. May it be just how astonishing and how joy-filled all that is that moves us to fear and reverence you all the more. That we've been reconciled to so holy a God. At so great a price. Thank you for Christ. In His name, Amen.